Thank you for listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers Romans 12, 1 and 2. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you, Andy, for reading our text today. I want you to imagine with me, if you would, what would be the right thing to do in a situation I'm going to give you here? What's the God-honoring right thing to do? Okay, so let's say that you were living back in the 1940s in the country of Holland, the Netherlands, and you are Dutch and you have some Jewish neighbors. And the Germans, the Nazis, invade Holland, and as they invaded Holland, you took in your Jewish neighbors. You've created a secret space up in your attic and you're hiding your Jewish neighbors from these Nazis. And one day, some Nazi troops show up at your door. And you know they've been going around through the neighborhood door to door looking for Jews and gathering them up and shipping them away. You have a pretty good idea of what will happen to these Jewish neighbors of yours if they are discovered by the Nazis. Now these troops knock at your door, you open the door, and they ask you very directly, do you have any Jews in your house. So now think about this situation. What would you say? And how many of us here, I don't know that I necessarily need to see a show of hands unless you want to, but how many of us here would say, would lie in that situation and say, no, there are no Jews in this house? Or how many of us would tell the truth Because God tells us in the Ten Commandments, what does he say? Thou shalt not lie. How many of us will tell the truth and say, yes, there's a few up in my attic, by the way. So why would we, and some of you showed me your hands, and I would presume probably many of us would think that this is an okay thing to do in that situation. To lie in that situation. When God says so clearly, thou shalt not lie. So is it wrong to lie, or is it okay to lie? Well, this today is our second sermon in a three-sermon series that we're doing here on grace, wisdom, and conscience. My hope is that these messages, these three messages, will help us as Christians and as a church to think about how we should live in the situation we find ourselves in the world right now. Kind of a crazy situation, crazy times in our world. Last week we talked in the first message about the importance of grace. How the most important thing we can do as Christians is to take God's grace into the world and give and share his grace with other people through our kindness, our forgiveness, our generosity, and so on. That's the foundational principle, the most important lesson for us as Christians, to be gracious in our world today. Now today and next week, we're going to build from that, be gracious, but now we're going to start talking about our convictions as Christians. Today we'll talk about wisdom. How is it that we discern the Lord's will so that we know what is right or wrong in a particular situation? This is a kind of question I've been asked a lot in recent months in one way, shape, or form, one way or another. How do we know 
what is right in this or that situation. And some of us are facing situations we never anticipated facing right now in the world and trying to wrestle with what is right. And so today, I'm just going to warn you right now in the beginning of this message up front, our message today is more of a teaching style message than a preaching message. I hate using the word lecture, but maybe it's kind of like that. But trying to lay a foundation for us today as Christians for how it is, broadly speaking, that we as Christians should think in our minds in order to form our convictions in being able to discern God's will, what is right or wrong in different situations. This is foundational stuff today for how we think about these things. And that will lead us into next week where we're going to talk about Christian conscience and how it is and why it is that even as Christians we often disagree on our convictions, but we'll see next week that in many situations that is okay and even a good thing in the church when our consciences disagree with one another. But before we can talk about personal conscience, which is next week and very important to talk about and understand, we have to have this kind of big picture about how we formulate convictions as Christians. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, so today we're talking about the wisdom side of it. Wisdom meaning how do we discern what is right or wrong in a particular situation? What is God's will in a particular situation? Like in our example that we'll use throughout the message, is it right or wrong to lie to, in that situation, to a Nazi soldier who comes to your door looking for Jews? Okay, so our text today is just a couple verses in Romans chapter 12. The outline up here on the screen, also in your bulletin. You see, first we'll look at the big picture of wisdom and how it is that we discern the Lord's will. And we'll use Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 as kind of our foundation for that. Then second, we'll think more broadly about Scripture. And we'll break wisdom down into steps or parts of how it is that we grow in wisdom. And then third, we'll talk about the practical application. How do we put this into practice in a situation like the one I've given you about whether or not to lie to a soldier at your door in that situation? Okay, so first, the big picture. The big picture of wisdom. If you look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bible open to that passage, and you look at these two verses, there's a progression in these verses that leads to the end of verse 2, where we are able to discern God's will. Okay, so how do we get to this point in Romans, in these two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2, how do we get to this point of being able to discern what is God's will? Well, here's where it begins. Look at verse 1. We read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing writing to these Christians in Rome. And he says, I'm making my appeal now on the basis of the mercies of God. That's what he's been writing about in the first 11 chapters of Romans up to this point, all of God's mercies. It's what we talked about last week. We talked about God's grace. So he's saying, think about how God has poured his grace out upon you. 
forgiving your sins so that you have new life in Christ and you're a new person in Christ. Now in light of that, Paul says, here is what you must do. Present your body now, your entire being, your entire self to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This language of sacrifice takes us back to the Old Testament, where if you remember in the Old Testament, God commanded the people of Israel to bring a sacrifice with them into the tabernacle or the temple. Bring an animal in, put it on the altar, and on the altar it will be killed as an act of worship to God. That's in the Old Testament. Now here we are as Christians, and Jesus has died for us as our sacrifice. So Paul says you don't need to bring in a dead sacrifice anymore as part of worship. Instead, he says, here is now your act of worship, Christians. Present yourself as the sacrifice. You now are going to climb up on the altar yourself, but not a sacrifice of death, but a living sacrifice where you've given your entire self to God to live for him and to do his will. This is God's given you his grace and mercy. He's poured it out upon you. Now you give yourself to God as a living sacrifice, doing his will. How are we going to do that? How are we going to live as a living sacrifice before God? Well, verse 2, now here's a progression. Here's what you need to do in order to be a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here there's a transformation now in our minds that works its way out into our lives and how we live. He begins and says in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. Anybody here ever used a jello mold? Anybody, are these things still in existence? I wonder, okay, a few of you, I figured anybody under the age of about 40 maybe is less likely to know of or to have used a jello mold. But if you, if you know the basic idea of how it works, and now I have to admit I've never used a jello mold, so I'm speaking theoretically about how jello molds work. Okay, you guys can tell me if I got this down or not. But you mix up your jello, what do they call it? It's not batter. You mix up your jello mixture right? It's liquid, and you have your mold, and you pour it in, and you stick it in the fridge for a few hours, and when it comes out, you turn it upside down, the jello comes out, the mold comes off, and what does the jello look like if you've done it right? Like a jiggly version of the mold, right? right that's, it's a jello mold. Okay, so what Paul's basically saying here is that we as people are like jello, and the world is a mold, and all of us, whether we realize it or not, all of us have been molded into conformity to the world. The world has shaped our thinking. It's shaped our habits. It's shaped us in ways, deep ways, in how we think about what is right or wrong in this or that situation. We've been molded by the world, conformed to the world. So Paul says, if now you're, as a Christian, in view of God's mercy... 
you're going to present yourself and be a living sacrifice to God, you're going to have to be transformed. No longer molded to the world, but transformed into something different. How's that going to happen? He says it's through the renewal of your mind. We're going to need an entirely new way of thinking where our minds, our thinking is now shaped by God's will, by his word, so that we know what is holy and acceptable to him. So now in this or that situation, we have a new way of thinking, a new set of habits, a new way of operating, of understanding right and wrong to do his will. This new way of thinking is what the Bible calls wisdom. The word's not here in these verses, but this is the word the Bible uses elsewhere for it, wisdom. Not, it's not just wisdom here in the way that we're thinking of it here. It's not just knowing a couple Bible verses here or there, though that's a good thing to be able to quote some scripture. But it's about having an entire way of thinking shaped by scripture. Or to use kind of the illustration we use with the kids in the kids' sermon, it's where scripture becomes like our lenses, our glasses. We are looking through them at the world. It's through what the Bible says, through who God is, that we see the world and understand different situations and see clearly how we ought to live in this or that situation. It's what one, one author calls theological vision, a way of seeing that is shaped by our theology, by an understanding of God and his word and his will and his ways. And when our minds are transformed like this, new way of thinking, biblical lenses, theological vision, wisdom, then in the end of verse 2, we will be able to discern the will of God. We'll know when we test his will in this or that situation, we'll know what it is that is good and acceptable and pleasing and perfect before him. And so when we find ourselves in a situation like when we're standing at our door, Nazi soldiers in front of us, Jews in our attic, it's through a transformed mind, not a mind conformed to the world anymore, a transformed mind shaped by biblical wisdom that we seek to understand and discern what does God will for me to do in this situation? Is it pleasing to him for me to lie in the situation or not? So this is the big picture here. If we're going to discern God's will, how to please him, this moment or that moment, it's going to start with a transformation of our minds, the renewal of our minds, putting on those glasses, having wisdom. So how do we do that? How do we have a transformed mind and grow in wisdom? Well, this takes us to our second point, where I want to break this down for us. And now we're kind of stepping outside of Romans 12 and trying to draw from all of Scripture here. What does this look like? And what I've got for us is eight steps. And they're not really steps because they kind of overlap and go in different orders, but eight parts or steps to being transformed and growing in wisdom. And as we go through these, we'll go through them very quickly. As we go through them, you might think, well, there could be a couple more that could be added. Probably could be. 
Okay, but this is kind of at least one way of breaking this down. And so if we go to the next slide, actually, under this, so there's going to be eight subpoints to point two. And just to make it more confusing and to forewarn you, I'll have three subpoints for point three. Okay, are you with me? All right, so we're going to break it down into eight subpoints here. So here's the first one learn to think biblically. It's where, where wisdom begins. Learn to think biblically. Now, this is the big picture. Before we ever find ourselves in a particular situation trying to discern what is right or wrong, we need to have already learned and grown in his word and his wisdom so that our Bible's scriptures are familiar to us. It's natural for us to think in terms of the Bible and theology and what is pleasing to God. Our habits have already been shaped so how do we do that? How do we learn to think biblically? Well, the bottom line is there's no shortcuts. It requires spending regular, consistent time reading, hearing, studying, being taught the scriptures. Think of it like muscle memory. If I said to you, hey, tomorrow I need you to play Beethoven Sonata on the piano. right? If you're going to play the piano well in this particular situation, what will you probably have already needed to have done? Probably years of practice where you have a teacher and where every week you have a lesson and every day for 30 minutes, what are you doing? Playing the piano, playing the piano, practicing over and over enough times until you develop the muscle memory, the instincts, the knowledge and now here comes a situation, a piece of music that you're asked to play, and you can draw from all that you've already learned and put it into practice and play that music. But if you wait until that moment, it's kind of too late, isn't it? If you ask me to play Beethoven Sonata tomorrow, it's hopeless. Okay? It's not going to work out well because I haven't done all that practice on the piano. How do we learn to think biblically? We want to have wisdom. We want to discern the Lord's will in this or that situation then now is the time to start putting into place the habits that build up our biblical thinking, our putting the lenses on, coming to Sunday school every week and hearing the teaching, hearing the Bible read and preached in our service, thinking about it throughout the week, reading it if you're able to read the Bible, listening to it on an app, talking about it with other Christians, going to ladies' Bible study, men's breakfast. When these kinds of things become our habit, Week in and week out, we're growing and thinking biblically. Okay, so that's first part, discerning the Lord's will. We need to broadly speak and learn to think biblically. Second, we need to pray for wisdom. A lot of passages that we could look at here, but James chapter 1, verse 3 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Let them ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's James chapter 1, verse 3. We should make this a habit to pray for wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to discern your, your will in this situation. Guide me. Show me. Guide my thinking. Pray for wisdom. Number three is to discern now which biblical principles apply to this situation. Now, we have broad biblical wisdom. We're praying for God to give us wisdom. Now I'm in this situation. Which, what, what does the Bible say? What might apply to the situation? 
What are the biblical principles that come into play here? Sometimes it may be that Scripture speaks very clearly and very overwhelmingly about what should be done in this situation. If I'm standing in line at the grocery store and someone cuts in front of me, and I in my mind wonder, would it be right before the Lord for me to kill this person for cutting in line in front of me? Well, you chuckle. Why do you chuckle? Because if we look at Scripture, what does the Bible say? Well, we can find all kinds of passages about thou shalt not murder and how God values life. Very few passages where I get to take vengeance on somebody in such an extreme way. Right? The Bible speaks very clearly about that situation. Adam, maybe you should forgive and be patient and these sorts of things. But other times it's maybe not quite so clear. It's more complicated. Different scriptures can be applied that might seem to speak and give different direction in this situation depending on how it's applied. Let me give you an example from scripture. Maybe you remember the story when Jesus was in a synagogue on the Sabbath and there was a man in the synagogue who had a crippled hand. Do you remember this story in the Gospels? Jesus in the synagogue, there's a man with a crippled hand. It's the Sabbath. What should Jesus do? Well, the religious authorities pointed to a command about the Sabbath. What's the command about the Sabbath? Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. And they said healing on the Sabbath would constitute work. Therefore, Jesus should not work on the Sabbath. That would be obedience to the Scriptures. That would be honoring the authorities here, the religious authorities. But what does Jesus do in that situation? He heals the man on the Sabbath. And Jesus says effectively there is actually a more important command that applies here, which is the command to love your neighbor. And in this situation, love for neighbor requires Jesus, who is able to heal, to heal this man even if it's the Sabbath. Now, what has Jesus done? If you think this through, in this situation, he said, well, we could apply the command honor the Sabbath by not working and therefore not healing. We could apply the command to love thy neighbor by healing and taking care of this man. And he's put those, he's weighed those, and he said, what is the will of the Father? What will please him? And he said, these principles outweigh those. And so he heals this man on the Sabbath. Okay, so part of biblical wisdom is discerning in what way does Scripture apply in this or that situation, especially when you could come to conflicting conclusions. Okay, a fourth thing to throw in here, discerning and doing the will of the Lord. Evaluate your motives. Why do I put that in here? This is basically a reminder as we're thinking about what would please the Lord here to be honest with yourself. Because sometimes we already know what we want the answer to be. And so we then want to go to Scripture, not to truly discern what the Lord's will is, but we want to go to Scripture to try to make the Scriptures justify what we already want to do. Nobody here has ever done that, have you? Right? We want to twist, manipulate the Scriptures. And so be honest about your motives. Make sure that you're truly and sincerely wanting to discern the Lord's will and not just justify your own will. 
Okay, number five, part of, of growing in wisdom here is to imitate your spiritual leaders. This is, this is kind of important and, and helpful, I think, to think about, that one of the resources we have as we want to be transformed in our thinking and how we handle situations, one of our resources is our spiritual leaders. Here in our church, we call them elders. And if you think about how, how do elders work in the church, why would I want to imitate those yahoos? Well, where do elders come from? How does a person get to be an elder in, in our church? Well, we as a church select our elders. You all have chosen who is going to be an elder in this church. What's the criteria for being an elder? On what basis do you affirm that this person is qualified to be an elder? Well, in Scripture, the basis for being an elder, the criteria, is spiritual maturity. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, these are people who are supposed to have been following Christ for a long period of time, who have demonstrated faithfulness in their lives, who have demonstrated wisdom as they've handled this situation and that situation over the course of their lives. You're looking at their lives and saying, these people seem to be able to discern the Lord's will and faithfully follow him. So therefore, we will affirm them as a church, as elders. And then what does the Bible tell us to do now that we've affirmed these people? as our leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Look at their lives. Watch how they live. Look at how the outcome of it. Are they demonstrating wisdom and pleasing the Lord? then imitate them, walk in their steps. This is part of how we can be transformed in our minds by imitating those who have gone before us. Number six, part of this process, listen to your church family. None of us are called to grow in wisdom and to follow and discern God's will alone. If you go back to Romans chapter 12, if you, we read just the first two verses of Walk Through, if you keep reading verses three and following, Everything else Paul says is about the church. In fact, in verse 4 of Romans chapter 12, just two verses later, Paul says, we are members of the one body of Christ. We belong to one another within the body. We all have gifts that we share together, and we grow together as a body. And so when we find ourselves in a situation where we're seeking to discern the Lord's will, we have a church family to walk with us, to encourage us, to love us, to listen to our situation, to offer help. If necessary at times, we have a church family to offer correction. If we've gone a little astray to say, hey, maybe come back over here where it's pleasing to the Lord. It requires humility, of course. But Proverbs 19, verse 20 says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom for the future. If you want to grow in wisdom, then listen to people around you. Hear what they're saying and learn from them. Then if we've gone through these things, I'm thinking biblically, I'm praying for wisdom, I'm weighing scripture, I'm looking at others, how they've gone before me, I'm looking at the church family. Now what do we do? Well, number seven, commit your steps to the Lord. 
and act in obedience to him. We reach a point where we commit ourselves to the Lord. Lord, I, this is the best I can understand, the best I can discern in this moment. And so I'm committing myself to you. And I'm going to act in accordance with my best ability to discern your will in this situation. And then we act in accordance with the conviction we have of his will. And then number eight, the last one here, be willing to reconsider by repeating the process. And here again, a very important mark of humility. Lord, we admit that even though in this moment I'm operating with the best wisdom and discernment I have, I still expect going forward that I am going to be growing in wisdom. And the day may come when I have a better understanding of the Bible than I have now, where I've learned new things from others, from my church or elders or whoever, where I have a new perspective of my own motive. I may down the road need to change my mind or my convictions. So the process is ongoing, and we need to have the humility to keep learning and growing. Okay, so that's just a, a basic rundown. Again, you can think through that. You might be able to add to it, tweak it, clarify it, whatever. Kind of a basic rundown of the resources God gives us for the transformation of our minds as he works in us by his spirit so we're no longer molded to the shape of the world, but able to discern what his will is. Okay, so now we come to our third point. Let's put it into practice then. How does all of this come together and work? So now we go back to our opening situation. You have those Jews hiding in your attic, not Nazi soldiers at your door. They've asked you point blank, are there any Jews in your attic? What are you going to say? What will be pleasing to God as you in this moment present yourself as a living sacrifice to God to do his will? Well, if we kind of work through those steps we had under number two, what might go through our minds? How are we going to process this? Well, you might in your own mind in this moment pray a quick prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Then think through which biblical principles might apply here. And so, of course, in that situation, we think of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. And it's not just in the Ten Commandments. The Bible, as we understand the Bible, says a lot about God being a God of truth and that we should be people of truth. We don't swear and take oaths. Why not? Because we always speak the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, the Bible says. We also know, thinking biblically, God is sovereign, isn't he? in control of all things? Is God present in this situation? If I answer truthfully, isn't God big enough, powerful enough, in control enough that his will would be done, that he could still protect these Jews in my attic if that's his will? Aren't there plenty of times in Scripture when God calls upon us as Christians to speak truth even if it leads to suffering? So maybe we should tell the truth when we think of it in those terms. But then we also know the Bible commands us to love our neighbor. We have examples like Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath, examples that that is a very important command 
and sometimes more important and outweighs other commands to love our neighbor. We know that if we speak the truth, we're handing these Jews over to these Nazis. It's going to lead to their suffering, even to their death. We know that God cares about life. Does God like murder? Like seeing people die? He values life. He calls upon us to protect the vulnerable. So now how will we weigh these things? Biblical principles on both sides, they need to be weighed. We evaluate our own motives. In this situation, do I just want to lie because I'm scared for my own life? Because I've been doing something here hiding these Jews? Is that my motivation? Just to protect me? Or am I truly seeking to honor the Lord? What's my motive here? We can look to spiritual leaders in our church family. Those wise people in my church family who have gone before me, who are in similar situations, how are they handling this situation? Are they hiding Jews and lying about it? What does my church family say about this? In that situation, in the 1940s, there were many Christians doing the same thing, walking that same path. And then maybe somewhere along the line, as we're processing all of this, talking to people, thinking biblically, in this situation, maybe along the line, we remember or somebody reminds us, points us to the story of Rahab in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Rahab in the Old Testament? She was living in Jericho, a non-Israelite, living in the city of Jericho. The people of Israel are marching through, conquering the region. They're approaching Jericho, and spies from Israel come into her town in Jericho. They're, they're studying the town, casing the town, researching in preparation for an invasion, an attack by Israel. And Rahab hides the spies. And when her own townspeople from Jericho show up looking for them, what did Rahab do? She lied to them. These spies were upstairs in her attic. Rahab lied and said they went out of town going that direction and sent them the wrong way. She lied in order to save the lives of these spies. And in so doing, she was also recognizing that these spies are actually the ones serving the true and living God, not my own townspeople. And so she's acknowledging the God of heaven by protecting these spies. Well, after all of that, what does the Bible have to say about Rahab and her lying in that situation? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 points to Rahab as an, a model of faith alongside Abraham and Moses. James chapter 2 verse 25 says that Rahab's lie was an act of faith that made her righteous before God. Lying was the right thing for her to do in that situation. It was good and pleased God. Now that's pretty profound, isn't it? The God who said, thou shalt not lie, but in this situation affirms Rahab for lying. So now we put all that together. Here I am standing at my door. Nazis in front of me, Jews in my attic. What am I going to do? Commit myself to the Lord. Lord, as far as I can understand and discern your will, here's what's good and pleasing to you. 
that in order to honor you, I need to lie in this situation. And now I say to the Nazi soldiers, no, there are no Jews here. And that was kind of a long process, wasn't it? I left those poor soldiers standing there a long time waiting for me to get to that answer, right? Maybe in that situation, most likely, if you were really hiding Jews, you probably had days, weeks, maybe months to prepare for that moment knowing it's coming. Maybe that moment is going to come over and over and over again. And so you've had time to process and think it through. Other times the moment might arrive suddenly and there's not much time to think beforehand. And those are the situations where it's most important that our instincts have been shaped biblically and by scripture. So what we jump to is Lord willing what is pleasing to him. Interestingly, many of you said at the beginning of the sermon that you would lie to save those Nazis. I doubt if very many of you had thought through all the process I walked through, but you had an instinct that that's what's right and pleasing to God if you've been shaped biblically. Okay, so this is the process. This is how we reach convictions as Christians. It grows out of our wisdom, out of our transformation of our minds where we're shaped in our thinking by Scripture. We put on those glasses seeking to know and discern God's will and please Him in every situation. If we had time today, we could talk about many different situations and run them through a similar type of grid of how we think about them. We don't have time to do that today. That's really, it's kind of the field, if you're interested in this stuff, it's the field of Christian ethics. Ethics being what's right and wrong. Christian being how do we as Christians know what's right and wrong. Books and books and books written on it. So if you really want to geek out on this stuff, uh, you can spend a lot of time on it. What I want to do to conclude today, though, as we wrap up, is instead of giving more situations, I want to give us three takeaways here. As we think about how this idea of wisdom and transformation of our minds applies to our lives, and especially these takeaways are at least um, kind of in light of what we're talking about, what's going on in the world, how do we as Christians live in light of the current situations we're facing in our world. And these three takeaways lay the foundation for next week, which is where we're really going when we talk about individual and personal conscience as Christians. Okay, So here's the three takeaways from all of this. The first, and these won't be on the screen, but the first is that we need to be careful that we don't oversimplify complex issues. We need to be careful we don't oversimplify complex issues. We have a tendency to want things to be simple, to think that there's got to be an easy answer to what the Lord's will is in this or that situation. If we just point to one Bible verse, we'll know what his will is, we can apply it, and that's that. Thou shalt not lie. End of story. How hard was that? Right? This is also what our world expects from us. Some of the situations we face right now, our world presumes that our convictions are very simple as Christians. If we can't point to a verse here or there, then it must not really be a conviction. When we oversimplify, though, when we treat issues as if they're very simple, and the Bible speaks very straightforwardly and simply to every situation, then what happens is we tend to think that anyone who disagrees with us 
must either be really stupid or really evil. And what do I mean by that? Well, if it's simple, thou shalt not lie, end of story. Then anybody who doesn't see that must be so dumb they can't even figure out one of the Ten Commandments. Or they're really evil. They know the Ten Commandments. They're just so evil they won't apply it in this situation. But in fact, if we take like the situation that Nazi at the door, it's much more complicated than that, isn't it? And if we've oversimplified and think anybody who would lie is just really stupid or really evil, the problem is maybe not so much with them. Maybe the problem is with me. And that I am not appreciating just how complicated this issue might be and how Scripture might need to be weighed and applied here. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. We need to be careful that we don't oversimplify complex issues. Okay, a second takeaway. We need to make sure that we are thinking biblically about all of life. That we are applying biblical thinking to all of life. Increasingly, our world wants to say that we as Christians are allowed to come to church on Sunday morning. Go to church, you're free to do that. Worship, hear the Bible, what have you. But then our world expects that when we walk out of the church and out into the world, that we will live in the mold of the world. And many Christians do this. It's like we put our glasses on Sunday morning for an hour or two, then we walk out and we take them off the rest of the week. We're not actually being transformed in our minds and discerning the Lord's will in every situation. But in reality, as Christians, we should always have our glasses on so that in every situation we face, not just at church, but in our homes, when the soldier is at our door, and whatever we're doing in our homes, at our work, on vacation, and so on, in every situation we face, we are thinking biblically. We're being shaped by it, discerning and applying the Lord's will. And what that means is that for us as Christians, there is no such thing, or there should be no such thing for us, as a non-religious decision. Every decision we make ought to be religious, done to please God because we're presenting our entire lives to him as living sacrifices. When we're running our businesses, when we're deciding how to vote, when we're thinking about how to spend our money, when we're deciding, and now here it comes, dare I say it, when we're making medical decisions. It's all shaped by our biblical vision, the glasses we wear. Many of you are like me with really bad eyesight. And so probably like me, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is get my glasses and put them on. What's the last thing I do as I'm falling asleep at night? Take them off and put them on the bedstand. Every waking moment, my glasses are on if I want to see clearly. We have to be able to think, we need to be thinking biblically about all of life. And then our third thing, and this really leads us into what we're going to talk about next week. We need to respect one another, even when we disagree 
in our convictions. Okay, we need to respect one another even when we disagree in our convictions. So we're going to talk about this at length next week, so I'm just mentioning it briefly here. But we all know that when we face, sometimes as Christians, we might face pretty much the same situation, and yet we don't always agree as Christians about how to handle it. In fact, I've kind of landed the plane on the situation of the Nazi at the door and hiding Jews. I've kind of landed it on the side of lying that maybe some of you here would be really uncomfortable with that. I think, you know, if I, at the end of the day, if I really want to please the Lord, I think I would need to tell the truth. Here's one of the strange, fascinating things about the Bible that we're going to see next week is that the Bible says it is okay for Christians to disagree. And it's actually good for Christians to disagree. And the Lord's will, what is right for one Christian, may not always be the same for another Christian in the same situation. How bizarre is that? Okay, that's next week. Okay, there's some, now you're going to want to come back next week, right? Or like, this, is, this blows my mind, I can't even handle it. Okay, but read Romans chapter 14 if you want. That's what we're going to be looking at next week and how we disagree as Christians. And so what we'll see next week is we have to learn to obey our own consciences but respect the consciences of others. I'm bound to obey my conscience, not yours. You're bound to obey your conscience, not mine. And you might think biblically and through all those steps about a situation and reach this conviction. I might think biblically and work through those steps and reach that conviction. And we're both bound by our conscience, by our convictions. Okay, so that's, that's next week. Is that something to look forward to or what? Okay, that's what we've been building toward. That grace peace, showing grace to one another and to our world. That's most important. Now today, wisdom, big picture, how do we formulate our convictions as Christians and reach our convictions? Now that gives us hopefully, hopefully the foundation we need so that next week we can talk about personal convictions and conscience and how do we operate with grace when we have worked through wisdom, biblical thinking and reached our convictions and now how do we treat one another in light of our convictions? That's, that's where we're going. Well, let me just say in conclusion that it's my hope and prayer that God will give us wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom so that we here, our church family, and each of us individually will no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but will be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will be able to discern his will in every situation doing what is good, pleasing, and perfect before him. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.